0: Section twenty five of the Complete Works of Tacitus, edited by Thomas Gordon. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recorded by Graham Redman. The Complete Works of Tacitus, to which are prefixed political discourses upon that author edited and translated by thomas gordon with introductory essays by thomas gordon volume one the annals book three part one the disgrace of piso agrippina notwithstanding the roughness of winter pursuing without intermission her boisterous voyage put in at the island Corsaira situated over against the coasts of calabria here to settle her spirit she spent a few days violent in her grief and a stranger to patience her arrival being the while divulged all the particular friends to her family mostly men of the sword many who had served under germanicus and even many strangers from the neighbouring towns Some inefficiousness towards the Emperor, more for company, crowded to the city of Brindusium, the readiest port in her way, and the safest landing. As soon as the fleet appeared in the deep, instantly were filled not the port alone and adjacent shores, but the walls and roofs, and as far as the eye would go, filled with the sorrowing multitude." They were consulting, one from one, how they should receive her landing, whether with universal silence, or with some note of acclamation. Nor was it manifest which they would do, when the fleet sailed slowly in, not as usual with joyful sailors and cheerful oars, but all things impressed with the face of sadness.' after she descended from the ship accompanied with her two infants carrying in her bosom the melancholy urn with her eyes cast steadily down equal and universal were the groans of the beholders nor could you distinguish relations from strangers nor the wailings of men from those of women unless that the newcomers, who were recent in their sallies of grief, exceeded Agrippina's attendants, wearied out with long lamentations, unless that the newcomers, who were recent in their sallies of grief, exceeded Agrippina's attendance, wearied out with long lamentations. Tiberius had dispatched two Praetorian cohorts, with directions that the magistrates of Calabria, Apulia, and Campania should pay their last offices to the memory of his son. Upon the shoulders, therefore, of the tribunes and centurions his ashes were borne, before went the ensigns rough and unadorned, with the fasces reversed. As they passed through the colonies the populace were in black, the knights in purple, and each place, according to its wealth, burnt precious raiment, perfumes, and whatever else is used in funeral solemnities. Even they whose cities lay remote attended. To the gods of the dead they slew victims, they erected altars, and with tears and united lamentations testified their common sorrow. Drusus came as far as Teresina, with Claudius the brother of Germanicus, and those of his children who had been left at Rome. The consuls Marcus Valerius and Marcus Aurelius just then entered upon their office. The senate and great part of the people filled the road, a scattered procession, each walking and weeping his own way. In this morning flattery had no share, for all knew how real was the joy, how hollow the grief of Tiberius for the death of Germanicus. Tiberius and Livia avoided appearing abroad, public lamentation they thought below their grandeur, or perhaps they apprehended that their countenances examined by all eyes might show deceitful hearts. That Antonia, mother to the deceased, bore any part in the funeral, I do not find either in the historians or in the city journals, though besides Agrippina and Drusus and Claudius, his other relations are likewise there recorded by name. Whether by sickness she was prevented, or whether her soul, vanquished by sorrow, could not bear the representation of such a mighty calamity. I would rather believe her to have been constrained by Tiberius and Livia, who left not the palace, and, affecting equal affliction with her, would have it seem that, by the example of the mother, the grandmother too and uncle were detained. The day when his remains were reposited in the tomb of Augustus, various were the symptoms of public grief. Now an awful silence, Then an uproar of lamentation, the city in every quarter full of processions, the field of Mars in a blaze of torches. Here the soldiers under arms, the magistrates without the insignia, the people by their tribes, all cried in concert that the commonwealth was fallen, and henceforth there was no remain of hope so openly and boldly that you would have believed they had forgot who bore sway. But nothing pierced Tiberius more than the ardent affections of the people towards Agrippina, while they gave her such titles as the ornament of her country, the only blood of Augustus, the single instance of ancient virtue and, while applying to heaven, they implored the continuance of her issue that they might survive the persecuting and malignant. There were those who missed the pomp of a public funeral, and compared with this the superior honours and magnificence bestowed by Augustus on that of Drusus, the father of Germanicus. That he himself had travelled in the sharpness of winter as far as Pavia, and thence, continuing by the corpse, had with it entered the city. Round his head were placed the images of the Claudii and Julii, he was mourned in the forum, his encomium pronounced in the rostras. All sorts of honours, such as were the inventions of our ancestors, or the improvements of their posterity, were heaped upon him. But to Germanicus were denied the ordinary solemnities, and such as were due to every distinguished Roman. In a foreign country, indeed, his corpse, because of the long journey, was burnt without pomp, but afterwards it was but just to have supplied the scantiness of the first ceremony by the solemnity of the last. His brother met him but one day's journey, his uncle not even at the gate. Where were those generous observances of the ancients, the effigies of the dead borne on a bed, hymns composed in memory of their virtue, with the oblations of praises and tears? Where, at least, were the ceremonies, and even outside, of sorrow? All this was known to Tiberius, and to suppress the discourses of the populace, he published an edict that many illustrious Romans had died for the commonwealth, but none so vehemently lamented. This, however, was to the glory of himself and of all men, if a measure were observed. The same things which became private families and small states became not princes and an imperial people. Fresh grief, indeed, required vent and ease by lamentation, but it was now time to recover and fortify their minds. Thus the deified Julius upon the loss of an only daughter, thus the deified Augustus upon the hasty death of his grandsons, had both vanquished their sorrow. More ancient examples were unnecessary, how often the Roman people sustained with constancy the slaughter of their armies, the death of their generals, and entire destruction of their noblest families. Princes were mortal, the commonwealth was eternal. They should therefore resume their several vocations. And because the Megalensian games were at hand, he added that they should even apply to the usual festivities. The vacation ended, public affairs were resumed. Drusus departed for the army in Illyricum, and the minds of all men were bent upon seeing vengeance done upon Piso. They repeated their resentments, that while he wandered over the delightful countries of Asia and Greece, he was stifling by contumacious and deceitful delays the evidences of his crimes, for it was bruited abroad that Martina, She who was famous for poisonings, and sent, as I have above related, by Sentius towards Rome, was suddenly dead at Brundusium, that poison lay concealed in a knot of her hair, but upon her body were found no symptoms of self-murder. Piso, sending forward his son to Rome, with instructions how to soften the Emperor, proceeded himself to Drusus, Him he hoped to find less rigid for the death of a brother than favourable for the removal of a rival. Tiberius, to make show of a spirit perfectly unbiased, received the young man graciously, and honoured him with the presents usually bestowed on young noblemen. The answer of Drusus to Piso was that if the current rumours were true, he stood in the first place of grief and revenge but he hoped they were false and chimerical, and that the death of Germanicus would be pernicious to none. This he declared in public, and avoided all privacy. Nor was it doubted, but the answer was dictated by Tiberius, when a youth otherwise easy and unwary practised thus the wiles and cunning of age. Piso, having crossed the sea of Dalmatia and left his ships at Ancona, took first the road of Pisinum and then the Flaminian Way, following the legion which was going from Pannonia to Rome and thence to garrison in Africa. This too became the subject of popular censure, that he officiously mixed with the soldiers and courted them in their march and quarters. He therefore, to avoid suspicion, or because when men are in dread their conduct wavers, did at Narnae embark upon the Nar, and then sailed into the Tiber. By landing at the burying place of the Caesars, he heightened the wrath of the populace. Besides, he and Plancina came ashore in open day, in the face of the city, who were crowding the banks, and proceeded with gay countenances, he attended by a long band of clients, she by a train of ladies. There were yet other provocations to hatred, the situation of his house proudly overlooking the forum, and adorned and illuminated as for a festival, the banquet and rejoicings held in it all as public as the place.' the next day Fulcinius Trio arraigned Piso before the consuls, but was opposed by Vitellius, Veranius, and others who had accompanied Germanicus. They said that in this prosecution Trio had no part, nor did they themselves act as accusers, but only gathered materials, and as witnesses produced the last injunctions of Germanicus. Trio dropped that accusation, but got leave to call in question his former life. And now the emperor was desired to undertake the trial, a request which the accused did not at all oppose, dreading the inclinations of the people and senate. He knew Tiberius, on the contrary, resolute in despising popular rumours, and in guilt confederate with his mother besides that truth and misrepresentations were easiest distinguished by a single judge, but in assemblies odium and envy often prevailed. Tiberius was aware of the weight of the trial, and with what reproaches he was assaulted. Admitting therefore a few confidence, he heard the charge of the accusers, as also the apology of the accused, and left the cause entire to the senate. Drusus returned the while from Illyricum, and though the senate had for the reduction of Mariboduus and other his exploits the summer before decreed him the triumph of ovation, he postponed the honour and privately entered the city. Piso, for his advocates, desired Titus, Eruntius, Fulcinius, Asinius, Gallus, asaninus marcellus and sextus pompeius but they all framed different excuses and he had in their room marcus lepidus lucius piso livenaeus regulus now earnest were the expectations of all men how great would prove the fidelity of the friends of germanicus what the assurance of the criminal what the behaviour of tiberius whether he would sufficiently smother or betray his sentiments. He never had a more anxious part, neither did the people ever indulge themselves in such secret murmurs against their emperor, nor harbour in silence severer suspicions. When the senate met, Tiberius made a speech full of laboured moderation, that Piso had been his father's lieutenant and friend, and lately appointed by himself at the direction of the senate coadjutor to germanicus in administering the affairs of the east whether he had there by contumacy and opposition exasperated the young prince and exulted over his death or wickedly procured it they were then to judge with minds unprejudiced for if he who was the lieutenant of my son violated the limits of his commission cast off obedience to his general, and even rejoiced at his decease and at my affliction, I will detest the man, I will banish him from my house, and for domestic injuries exert domestic revenge, not the revenge of an emperor. But for you, if his guilt of any man's death whatsoever be discovered, show your just vengeance, and by it satisfy yourselves, satisfy the children of Germanicus, and us his father and grandmother. Consider, too, especially whether he vitiated the discipline and promoted sedition in the army, whether he sought to debauch the affections of the soldiers and to recover the province by arms, or whether these allegations are not published falsely and with aggravations by the accusers, with whose overpassionate zeal I am justly offended. For whither tended the stripping the corpse and exposing it to the eyes and examination of the populace, with what view was it proclaimed even to foreign nations, that his death was the effect of poison, if all this was still doubtful, and remains yet to be tried. It is true I bewail my son, and shall ever bewail him. But neither do I hinder the accused to do what in him lies to manifest his innocence, even at the expense of Germanicus, if aught blamable was in him. From you I entreat the same impartiality. Let not the connection of my sorrow with this cause mislead you to take crimes for proved, because they are imputed. For Piso, if the tenderness of kinsmen, if the faith of friends has furnished him with patrons, let them aid him in his peril, show their utmost eloquence, and exert their best diligence. To the same pains, to the same firmness, I exhort the accusers. Thus much, out of the common course, we will grant to the memory of Germanicus that the inquest concerning his death be held rather here than in the forum, in the senate than in the common tribunals. In all the rest we will descend to the ordinary methods. Let no man in this course consider Drusus's tears, let none regard my sorrow, no more than the probable fictions of calumny against us. Two days were then appointed for maintaining the charge, six for preparing the defence, and three for making it. Fulcinius began with things stale and impertinent, about the ambition and rapine of Piso in his administration of Spain, things which, though proved, brought him under no penalty if acquitted of the present charge. Nor, though he had been cleared of former faults, could he escape the load of greater enormities after him servius veranius and vitellius all with equal zeal but vitellius with great eloquence urged that piso in hatred to germanicus and passionate for innovations had by tolerating general licentiousness and the oppression of the allies corrupted the common soldiers to that degree that by the most profligate he was styled father of the legions. He had, on the contrary, been outrageous to the best men, above all to the friends and companions of Germanicus, and at last by witchcraft and poison destroyed Germanicus himself, hence the infernal charms and immolations practised by him and Plancina. He had then attacked the commonwealth with open arms, and before he could be brought to be tried, they were forced to fight and defeat him. In every article but one his defence was faltering, for neither his dangerous intrigues in debauching the soldiery, nor his abandoning the province to the most profligate and rapacious, nor even his insults to Germanicus were to be denied he seemed only to wipe off the charge of poison, a charge which in truth was not sufficiently corroborated by the accusers, since they had only to allege that at an entertainment of Germanicus Piso, while he sat above him, with his hands poisoned the meat. It appeared absurd that amongst so many attending slaves besides his own, in so great a presence and under the eye of Germanicus he would attempt it. He himself required that the waiters might be racked, and offered to the rack his own domestics. But the judges were implacable from different motives. Tiberius for the war raised in the province, and the Senate could never be convinced that the death of Germanicus was not the effect of fraud some moved for the letters written to Piso from Rome, a motion opposed by Tiberius no less than by Piso. From without at the same time were heard the cries of the people that if he escaped the judgment of the senate, they would with their own hands destroy him. They had already dragged his statues to the place from whence malefactors were precipitated, and there had broken them, but by the orders of Tiberius they were rescued and replaced. Piso was put into a litter and carried back by a tribune of a praetorian cohort, and attendants variously understood whether that officer was intended as a guard for his safety or a minister of death. Plancina was under equal public hatred, but had more secret favour. Hence it was doubted how far Tiberius durst proceed against her. For herself, while her husband's hopes were yet plausible, she professed that she would accompany his fortune, whatever it were, and if he fell, fall with him. But when, by the secret solicitations of Livia, she had secured her own pardon, she began by degrees to drop her husband, and to make a separate defence. After this fatal warning he doubted whether he should make any further efforts, but by the advice of his sons, fortifying his mind, he again entered the Senate. There he found the prosecution renewed, suffered the declared indignation of the fathers, and saw all things cross and terrible, but nothing so much daunted him as to behold Tiberius, without mercy, without wrath close, dark, unmovable, and bent against every access of tenderness. When he was brought home, as if he were preparing for his further defence the next day, he wrote somewhat, which he sealed and delivered to his freedman. He then washed and anointed, and took the usual care of his person. Late in the night, his wife leaving the chamber, he ordered the door to be shut, and was found at break of day with his throat cut, his sword lying by him. I remember to have heard from ancient men that in the hands of Piso was frequently seen a bundle of writings which he did not expose, but which, as his friends constantly averred, contained the letters of Tiberius and his cruel orders towards Germanicus, that he resolved to lay them before the fathers and to charge the emperor, but was deluded by the hollow promises of Sejanus, and that neither did Piso die by his own hands, but by those of an express and private executioner. I dare affirm neither, nor yet ought I to conceal the relations of such as still lived when I was a youth. Tiberius, with an assumed air of sadness, complained in the senate, but Piso, by that sort of death, had aimed to load him with obloquy, and asked many questions, how he had passed his last day, how his last night. The freedman answered to most with prudence, to some in confusion. The Emperor then recited the letter sent him by Piso. It was conceived almost in these words. Oppressed by a combination of my enemies and the imputation of false crimes, since no place is left here to truth and my innocence, to the immortal gods I appeal that towards you, Caesar, I have lived with sincere faith, nor towards your mother with less reverence. For my sons I implore her protection and yours.' My son Cnaeus had no share in my late management, whatever it were, since all the while he abode at Rome. My son Marcus dissuaded me from returning to Syria. Oh, that old as I am I had yielded to him, rather than he, young as he is, to me. Hence, more passionately, I pray, that, innocent as he is, he suffer not in the punishment of my guilt.' By a series of services for five and forty years I entreat you, by our former fellowship in the consulship, by the memory of the deified Augustus, your father, by his friendship to me, by mine to you, I entreat you for the life and fortune of my unhappy son. It is the last request which I shall ever make you. Of Plancina, he said nothing tiberius upon this cleared the young man of any crime as to the civil war he alleged the orders of his father which a son could not disobey he likewise bewailed that noble house and even the grievous lot of piso himself however deserved for Plancina, he pleaded with shame and guilt alleging the importunity of his mother against whom more particularly the secret murmurs of the best people waxed bitter and poignant. Was it then the tender part of a grandmother to admit to her sight the murderess of her grandson, to be intimate with her, and to snatch her from the vengeance of the Senate? To Germanicus alone was denied what by the laws was granted to every citizen— by Vitellius and Veranius the cause of that prince was mourned and pleaded, by the emperor and his mother Plancina was defended and protected. Henceforth she might pursue her infernal arts so successfully tried, repeat her poisonings, and by her arts and poisons assail Agrippina and her children, and with the blood of that most miserable house satiate the worthy grandmother and uncle in this mock trial two days were wasted tiberius all the while animating the sons of piso to defend their mother when the pleaders and witnesses had vigorously pushed the charge and no reply was made commiseration prevailed over hatred the consul aurelius cotter was first asked his opinion for when the emperor collected the voices, the magistrates likewise voted. Cotter's sentence was that the name of Piso should be raised from the annals, part of his estate forfeited, part granted to his son Cnaeus, upon changing that name. His son Marcus should be divested of his dignity, and, content with fifty thousand great sesterces, be banished for ten years." and to Plancina, at the request of Livia, indemnity should be granted. Much of this sentence was abated by the Emperor, particularly that of striking Piso's name out of the annals, when that of Mark Antony, who made war upon his country, that of Julius Antonius, who had by adultery violated the house of Augustus, continued still there. He also exempted Marcus Piso from the ignominy of degradation and left him his whole paternal inheritance. For as I have already often observed, he was incorruptible by any temptations of money, and from the shame of having acquitted Plancina, rendered then more than usually mild. He likewise withstood the motion of Valerius Messalinus for erecting a golden statue in the temple of Mars the Avenger and that of Cicina Severus for founding an altar to revenge. Such monuments as these, he argued, were only fit to be raised upon foreign victories. Domestic evils were to be buried in sadness. Messalinus had added that to Tiberius, Livia, Antonia, Agrippina, and Drusus, public thanks were to be rendered for having revenged the death of Germanicus, but had omitted to mention Claudius. Messalinus was asked by Lucius Espranus in the presence of the Senate whether by design he had omitted him, and then at last the name of Claudius was subjoined. To me, the more I revolve the events of late or of old, the more of mockery and slipperiness appears in all human wisdom and the transactions of men. For in popular fame, in the hopes, wishes, and veneration of the public, all men were rather destined to the empire, than he for whom fortune then reserved the sovereignty in the dark.' End of section twenty five.